0: you
1: Russia bombs Syria. Is this the start of a greater war? The Taliban hit a major Afghan city. Can the Afghan army regain control? Why are Middle Eastern refugees taking over a former RAF base in Germany? And the Labour Party conference? Is Mr Corbyn at odds with his backbenchers? But I don't think that answering a potential prime minister, answering a question like that, in the way in which he did, is helpful. Russia has started airstrikes in Syria. It claims its bombs have hit Islamic State targets, but this has not been independently verified. I'm joined by Director-General of the think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark, the independence commentator on Russia, Mary Dejevsky, and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. Professor Clark, first of all to you. Is there any doubt about what has been hit and by whom?
0: Uh, Not as far as yesterday goes. I think there's still reports coming in today of big strikes that were started two or three hours ago. But undoubtedly, there were strikes yesterday in Homs and Hammer and Latakia, um, in some cases against groups that were being... Um, supported and indeed um, equipped by the CIA. So there's no doubt about it that the first r- uh, wave of Russian attacks have not been against ISIL forces at all, but against other opposition forces um, to strengthen Assad in the immediate uh, um, perspective.
1: Christopher Lee, how do you go about getting that independent verification?
2: Uh, intelligence comes in three main forms. Uh, human intelligence, human, is what we're talking about where you've got people on the ground let's say uh, in Homs um, American uh, officers on the ground and they can report back and say yeah we took a hit yesterday we know that this was coming therefore from the Russians you've got satellite pictures you've got um, battle damage assessment uh, pictures, you know, the morning afterwards. Bring this all together through different agencies, whether it's through communications, labs, something like GCHQ, whether it's uh, NSA agencies in, in America. But very important the satellite pictures. You, you know where it's gone. I saw some pictures this morning, and there they had sort of grey pictures, and they had the uh, latitude and longitude of where strikes were.
1: Mary Dijewski, why is President Putin taking this action, and why now?
3: Well, I think there are a whole load of reasons. Um, One of them is a purely political reason that I think that um, Putin wants Russia to be back on the international map. It wants to be seen as a global player. It doesn't want to be, as Russia might see it, sort of exiled and and told that, you know, Ukraine might be just about its business, but anything further afield isn't. Um, So I think there's something of that. I think there's something about... Um, not wanting to be seen um, as isolated, that Russia has, uh, has, has a part to play um, in coordination with other people. And um, I also think that um, it's maybe a bit too narrow to look at it, as um, I think Professor Clark was saying, that the airstrikes by Russia so far have appear to have been directed at opposition groups and not at ISIS forces. Professor
0: because Clark. I think do you want to come back that, on that? Well yes, no, no. sorry,
3: I think the, the way that Russia the, the, the way that Russia might see it is that forces um, ranged against Assad are essentially in alliance with ISIS in alliance with ISIS because they both threaten the integrity of the Syrian All right, state. Pr- Professor Clark
0: yes I mean the the Russians uh, may indeed have a a different sort of set of targets and they've got their priorities their immediate priorities are to take some of the military pressure off Assad which was building up because Assad although politically he's he's hung on a lot militarily he's not been doing very well in the last few months and the Russians were um, I think feeling that they needed to step in in a a, a greater degree in order to support that but Putin always takes the as it were the opportunistic end of the risky spectrum so if if he feels he's got to do something he'll do it in a surprising and rather risky way in order to gain some bigger advantages and i, I think that's what we're seeing here um, he may succeed in the short term certainly
1: christopher lee uh, assuming president putin he wants to be back on the political map what's he going to do with it
2: um first and foremost he's got to uh, protect his own interests where he is at the moment and his own interests are the are the guarding and then the preserving of, of president, Assad of Syria, until such times as there may be uh, an interim measure taking place where Assad agrees to step down. But that's miles away. What's happening at the moment, the rebels in, who are against Assad are getting closer and closer and closer to uh, Assad's territory, basically. Uh, Russia is there to defend it. But it does not mean that Russia is taking its eye off the main ball, and that is to go after um, IS, ISIS, or whatever we're going to call it. And don't forget, he would probably see, probably see that there is a threat of ISIS or some agents of ISIS or, or even directions from ISIS in his own territory of Russia.
1: Mary Dejevsky, how is
3: all of this going down in Russia? Well, I think if it's limited to airstrikes, which Putin has said, and, you know, exactly like Western leaders say in, the, in, the, in similar circumstances, we're only going to do airstrikes, don't you worry about boots on the ground. Putin has said exactly that. And I think if it is limited to airstrikes and if they present it on, um, in the Russian media as being successful in those terms, then public opinion will remain with Putin. But I think there is a problem if they go further. Um, If they do put boots on the ground, if they start having losses, then Afghanistan and the uh, the Soviet debacle in Afghanistan is in enough recent living memory in Russia and among Russians to provide um, a very difficult precedent that I think could lose Putin popularity very, very fast.
2: Uh, we're not going to get any boots on the ground at the moment. Just, uh, I mean, when we hear reports, you know, there are 3,000 uh, uh, Marines, Russian Marines, in, 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 in Syria at the moment. We're talking about boots on the ground is a massive, massive deployment of a lot of troops. That's not going to happen. It would take, it would take six months to a year, perhaps, just to, just to simply plan for that thing. Those people that are in, in, in the Russian bases at the moment in Syria are there in protection and support of the air operations. Professor
1: Michael Clark, uh, we have the situation now. America's bombing Syria, the Russians are bombing Syria. What do you think is the worst that can happen?
0: Well, the worst that could happen is that American and Russian forces come into direct conflict. Um, both sides are aware of that. And although there's, I think there's a, there's a certain amount of danger of that in the next couple of weeks, I think both sides will, will frighten themselves into working out some uh, frameworks. Um, but the Russians have gone in uh, into operations much earlier than the Americans expected. They almost insulted them by announcing it through the defense attache in Baghdad. They didn't even ring up the well, Pentagon, still yeah. less the White House. So there was, there's a clear attempt by the Russians to say, look, this is what we're doing. Just get used to it, you know, give, live with it. And I think that there's a degree of um, you know, insult and arrogance there, but nevertheless, both sides, I think, will try to work something out fairly quickly. Yeah,
2: here's a scenario for you. Uh, the rebels being attacked by Russians, as at the moment, or in this particular strike. They then turn to their main sponsor, who is the United States, and say, we need close air support from you. We've then got the americans having to take a terrible decision uh, because that puts them in direct conflict with the uh, with with russia
3: Mary i think it's a very very risky scenario and i agree with everything that everybody said before now about the the risks attached to you know it's it's what can happen by accident not what can happen by design I think that Russians maybe brought their planned airstrike forward deliberately um, to really to to, to lay down, lay it down to the Americans that they weren 't going to be subordinated to Americans that they weren 't going as it were to fit in with america 's plans. They wanted to have discussions, and I think you know the Americans reacted immediately, calling for military to military discussions which I think are happening today. Um, I think it 's also worth pointing out that um Last weekend, I think um, Netanyahu made a flying visit to Moscow, which was not very much noticed, but apparently was also part of the preparations for trying to make sure that, you know, whatever Israel might do in terms of flights um, would not cross would not cause a potential mm. accidents with, um, with Russia. but. You know, the, the risk, the danger is there that what you're looking at is something that never actually happened during the Cold War that proxy wars were fought but they were always through proxies and they were kept at that level and here we have the possibility even though mm-hmm. it's a remote possibility of Russians and Americans actually finding themselves on opposite sides in combat
1: Mary from The Independent thank you for your time today Sit rap, with Kate Still to come, what are Syrian refugees doing at a former RAF base in Germany and the ballistic blusterings over Trident? This is BFBS. Sit, former British military bases in Germany have become part of the response to Europe's migration crisis. What was once RAF Wildenrath is now be- welcoming refugees. BFBS reporter Will Inglis has been to meet them.
4: Nestled in a forest near the Dutch border, Wildenrath has for decades been a hidden part of British Forces Germany. The airfield was sold off in the 90s and is now used to test high-speed trains. But the housing was kept as an overflow from nearby JHQ and javelin barracks. Now, though, Wildenrath lies largely abandoned, a rotting Cold War relic like so many others. Except that one stretch of the main drag, Harry Away, has found a new use as a processing centre for newly arrived refugees. Michael Stock is mayor of the nearby town of Wegberg. It's a perfect place to um, give people who uh, flee from terror, war, uh, give their new home. The new residents are all families, only due to be here for between two weeks and three months, while their applications are decided, although that target dates from long before the overwhelming numbers now arriving in Germany. But it's still too long for some. I ask a civil engineer from Kurdish Syria is desperate to get to work. He tells me why he made the perilous journey.
5: I come here to, to,
2: to save my life. For me, for my wife, for my
4: children. How was your journey here? Clearly, it, it's not an easy journey to make.
2: I take it one month to come to Germany. Difficult from the Syria because. Take the say from to Greek. I see the die because I think uh,
1: what all go in, uh, you.
2: If you want to come in Europe, you you should be first. You should be. You will we will die in the road. After that, you will be safety.
4: But it's not all such daring do. I meet several Albanians like Anita. She tells me they just caught the bus direct from Tirana in search of a better life.
5: We don't have work, we don't have a house. I am pregnant, I have uh, one boy three years old and we need to do something. I'm diplomated and I never get a job. The
4: last Brits only moved out three years ago this week, but already nature has started to encroach. Pavements have buckled and roofs collapse as the forest tries to reclaim this oddly British housing estate. Water supply pipes have failed, power lines corroded, and worst of all, the whole site is overrun with wild boar. So it is then that just a handful of the largest houses have been pressed back into use. One is now a communal area with playrooms and a dining room. The others divided up into endless bedrooms. The original community centre, home to the mountains of clothing donated by surrounding towns and villages, while Vildenrat may be one of the first ex-British bases to be used like this, with only 115 residents so far. It certainly won't be the biggest. This month, Fallingbostel is expected to welcome 3,000 asylum seekers.
1: That was Will Inglis reporting from RAF Wildenrat. Christopher, word on the street is that the German authorities are pushing for British troops to pull out of Germany earlier than planned um, because they want the buildings back. Could that happen? <laughs>
2: Yeah, you can, you can pull your troops out as quick as you're able to, able to do it as, as a logistical exercise. But the point here is that there are, right across uh, Germany, there are numbers of former bases, existing bases to some extent, and you can take quite a lot of people as refugee camps into those bases. No reason why you could do it, but you can't do it like oh, we've got to to resolve this in the next couple of weeks or or, or a month. It's a big logistical exercise.
1: Afghan government forces are still fighting Taliban militants for control of the city of Kunduz. Earlier, government forces recaptured the city centre, but it's reported the Taliban is now fighting back in several districts. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Kunduz was important from the start of the Afghan war. Why does the Taliban want it back at such a cost?
0: Partly it's in a strategic area. It's, it's up, up in the north. The German forces were there during the, uh, the ISAF uh, operations. And uh, I think there's the, there are a number of elements here. One is that um, with doubts over the Taliban's long-term future, internal rifts within the Taliban, the, the announced death of Mullah Omar, who seemed to die two years ago, and so on, I think there's, a, there's an element of wanting to show that they are still a force to be reckoned with. Also, that they, there's more to be gained in the north than the south at the moment in terms of offensive operations. And also, we talk about the Taliban, but I, I mean this is also connected, I think, to the Haqqani network and some of the, uh, as it were, the allies of the Taliban, people who fight with them rather than for them. Um, so there's, there's, a number, there's a number of elements here, but undoubtedly, if Kunduz fell permanently to the Taliban, that would be a big blow to the Afghan forces. Mm. And if the Taliban are decisively thrown out of Kunduz, which may be happening, then that actually is a pretty big setback for them. So the stakes are fairly high.
2: Mike, um, one of the things you've got to actually try and work out is that what's happened in Kunduz is, is that a question of the Taliban's strength, or is it a question of the Afghan forces, including the police forces, weakness? And that is particularly important when you get someone like M- 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 Mullah Mohammed uh, Mansur, yeah. the new Qaba- uh, uh, Taliban leader,
0: yeah. saying, next stop carbon. Mm. Exactly, yes, that's the point. If they could take and hold Kunduz, then that doesn't bode very well. How
1: much of a coup um, was it, though, in terms of uh, showing that they're a force to be reckoned with, just well, pu- it, it, publicity-wise, I suppose? Yeah, well, it was
0: pretty good. I, I mean, in, in operational terms, they they prepared it um, and they attacked in, in quite a sophisticated way. But equally, the Afghan National Security Forces used a lot of special force operations, and I don't think they were only Western special forces. I think they were Western-trained mm. Afghan forces. They infiltrated Kunduz uh, about 36 Six hours ago and have turned the tide. So the Afghan National Security Forces have also shown themselves to be fairly sophisticated in the way that they've yeah. begun to take it back.
1: But, but how much is NATO still involved, Christopher? Well, we, uh, For example, uh,
2: the, uh, the Americans have got 10,000 in, uh, still in Afghanistan. And we're already getting noises from Washington that that may be extended. But most significantly... There was
1: air cover, wasn't there? Yeah.
2: There was, well, that's one of the weaknesses of the Afghan uh, National Army, that it doesn't have its own we're back to this idea of close air support. But significantly, Mike was saying, well, the, you know, the Germans used to own this city, uh, own this town. The Germans have still got 1,000 uh, troops in Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. they were talking just last week, of saying they might extend them at the end of this year for
1: Professor Michael Clark, in your job, I mean, how much do you talk to to, to the military about these kinds of events in Afghanistan, and what do they what do they tell you?
0: They always tell us that uh, the Afghan forces are not bad as long as they're not stretched too much, and you know the Taliban have their limitations as well. Because I mean, if the Taliban could launch some sort of all out offensive, they would, but the fact is they can't. Um, and so what you've got is a, is a sort of a, com- a competition. We're doing two sets of forces, both which are fairly limited. The training programme in Afghanistan has not gone. It's gone. It's gone fairly well at a basic level, but the officer training is not all that good. The you know the leadership of Afghan forces is patchy. Some of them are fine. Some of them don't seem as if they would stand up to too much pressure. So it's all a bit on, on a knife edge. But let's remember that you know the elections have been successful in Afghanistan, and it certainly hasn't collapsed at the moment. And, and there is quite a lot of of uh, hope being placed in Mr. Ghani, Ashraf Ghani, the new um, Afghan president, because it's it's felt that the West can really work with him in a way that it eventually couldn't work with um, Hamid Karzai
2: There are two more problems with uh, here, there's a heck of a lot of corruption still uh, of the north of the uh, of the Afghan pyramid, and uh, that makes a, a particularly problem, and the other thing to remember, uh, Taliban has not got it all its own way, it's, it's got ISIS, IS mm. on its tail as well uh, that's another element which we have often overlook.
1: Let, let's now look at some of the other stories around this week. And An American aircraft carrier has begun its deployment to Japan as the two countries look to enhance their defence ties. Uh, this is the nuclear-powered USS Ronald Reagan, and it will be based at the port of... And I'm going to let you say this, Chris, because you said it so well earlier. Yokosuka. <laughs> yeah, let's just talk about the significance of this deployment. Um, I mean, the,
2: important, the, the importance is that You've got to remember since the second end of the second world war the united states has been in japan okinawa is a, be- a perfectly good example it also comes at a time when there's some some unease about the japanese government's um, meaning when they say they want to expand the role perhaps of the uh, of the japanese defense force so this becomes particularly important and when you look across the way at china uh, it's a reminder to China that the China Sea, where they're building some sort of bases all the time, uh, is, is, not, is not free real estate.
1: Mm. The British Army is having trouble signing up officers. It's launched a new recruiting campaign because of dwindling numbers. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, were you aware of this, or do you know why it's happened?
0: Yes, they, I mean, there is a sense that the Army is, in a sense, taking a breather after Afghanistan. The fact that there, there are not um, constant operations to go into actually means that a uh, number of officers are leaving earlier than they might have, I mean, people are leaving as, as uh, captains or lieutenants when they might have gone one rank up before they left. Um, and also recruiting is down because um, there is still a sense that the army is reducing and maybe reduced further. I mean, that's not an immediate issue in terms of numbers because the Conservative government has committed to maintain personnel numbers. Mm. But there was a general sense, you know, through the, before and through the election that actually life in the Army would not be as rewarding in the future. So there's a, a natural, as it were, a bit of a slump there, which the Army does need to address.
1: Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, the MOD has launched a new app, especially for service personnel. It's called Mod Ice. Yeah. What is it?
0: Uh,
2: well, basically, you put in your details and you can get everything out of it. It's rather like if you want Uber, you want a taxi, uh, and you want some sort of military <laughs> It's emergency access. details, it's, isn't yeah, it, for people, yeah. yes. And if you want to put your details in, they've got it covered. I tell you what, it's a hacker's dream, isn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, it, can it stay secure, uh, Michael? No, no, not today.
2: No,
0: <laughs> no <laughs> Probably way. not. nothing can stay secure. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: FBS Zip Rep. It's party conference season. James Hurst has been with the Labour Party in Brighton where defence wasn't high on the agenda, but by the end, it was the only talking point.
3: Complimentary
6: Morning Star. Complimentary Morning Star. Thank you, sir. The front page of Monday's Morning Star declared that a vote on Trident had been blocked, but it was party members who chose Jeremy Corbyn We decided not to give Labour's most divisive issue an airing on the conference floor.
3: I think it is a difficult question, but I really do think the party have to take stock. Personally, I want scrap Trident, but it needs to be something
4: that we debate. I think there's room for persuading some people. Whether that's enough, I'm not
6: sure. It looked like Mr Corbyn and his shadow cabinet had dodged a bullet, kicking the issue into the long grass and freeing him up to hit back at Conservative claims that under him, Labour's a threat to national security. Yes, we do need a strong military, modern military and security forces
2: to keep us safe, and to take a lead in humanitarian and peacekeeping
6: missions, working with and strengthening the United Nations. The sign in front of him read, straight-talking, honest politics, and there was honesty about big differences in Labour on Trident at this conference. Not a problem, they said. We've agreed to disagree, at least for now, to talk and to come to agreement. Shadow Defence Secretary Maria Eagle.
5: When Jeremy asked me to be the Shadow Defence Secretary, I reminded him that I have always supported um, us renewing our independent nuclear deterrent. Now, I know that he and I disagree about this. He asked me to facilitate a debate. And I think, you know, politics is changing in this country. Are you
6: prepared to change your mind if the party comes to a different view?
5: Well, um, I... I think it will be very difficult for me to change my mind in respect of this. I've looked at this very carefully.
6: Despite the clear differences, it all seemed to be going so well. Carefully chosen words giving a show of working unity from Labour's top team. Until the last day when Jeremy Corbyn was asked this
4: deterrence of course depends on somebody believing well, that you would use it and you wouldn't,
2: are, would you? I mean there, there are no are
5: circumstances in which you would use it. Five
2: declared nuclear weapon states in the world, there are three others that have nuclear weapons that is eight countries out of 192. Okay. And so well, 100... you wouldn't use it? No. So it wouldn't be a deterrent. So even if we had it, it wouldn't
0: 187 work?
2: 187 countries don't feel the need to have a nuclear weapon to protect their security. Why okay. should those five need it themselves?
5: I think it um, undermines just degree our uh, attempt to try and get a policy process going. As far as I'm concerned we start from the policy we have and at the end of the process the party will decide what its policy is. Meanwhile we're able to discuss it openly. But I don't think that answering a potential prime minister answering a question like that, uh, is, is in the way in which he did is helpful.
6: What followed was sniping on social media, a whirl of personal interviews by leading Labour figures and seemingly the breakdown of a peace deal in the shadow cabinet after a matter of days. If we learnt anything at this conference, it is that defence decisions are still the most divisive and difficult that Labour faces in Jeremy Corbyn's quest for a new people-led politics.
1: That was James Hurst reporting, uh, Christopher. So we know that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't go ahead with a nuclear attack, but that doesn't mean he wouldn't renew Trident. So status quo, potentially.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a great headline, and if you don't like the, don't like Labour Party, keep, keep at it. Now, I'll tell you, I can remember from 1968, unfortunately, uh, six defence ministers that told me, starting with Dennis Healey, I would not press the button. If we got to the button-pressing point... Therefore, um, the idea of deterrence would have failed anyway, but Mm. they wouldn't do it. Michael Heseltine, Michael Heseltine, two or three times told me, listen, uh, if we did not have nuclear weapons, then no cabinet, Labour or Conservative, would actually buy them. So there's nothing new in this debate, and I think it's going to settle down. Don't forget, as far as Trident Renewal is concerned, the Labour Party in general has actually voted for it, and they're the people that matter.
1: Professor Clark. Um, given that there's nothing new in the debate, as Christopher says, I mean, how much damage does it do to confidence in the Labour Party, though, as a, a party that can, would be able to make sound decisions on military issues were it in government?
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a leadership issue, really. That you know, If Jeremy Corbyn is going to say that everything is a matter of uh, debate within the party then there will, be, there will be many cases on foreign and domestic affairs when you just want leadership. You want mm-hmm. a leader to say this is the direction. And, in fact, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was putting into words what it is generally believed most prime ministers have probably written in their very secret letters when they become prime minister to the commanders of submarines, you know, that in the event that I, as prime minister, am dead and my deputy is dead, then open it, then you open this letter that I've pre- pre- previously written telling you either to fire the weapons or don't fire the weapons or do something else. And it is generally believed, though nobody knows for certain, that most prime ministers have said, don't fire. Um, on the other hand, saying it out loud like this at the very beginning of his term as Labour Party mm. leader when he's miles away from power is probably not a clever idea. It's much more about Labour politics. Mm. And, of course, the fact that he thinks this now, in any case, even if, if Corbyn became Prime Minister, it's not necessarily the case that he would still believe it when he was Prime Minister or that after some dreadful crisis that left us in a nuclear uh, standoff where so, all of a sudden the prospect of nuclear war became real again, maybe he changed his view again. Who mm. wouldn't?
1: All right. Ask Sip- Rep, that's what we asked you to do last week it was all for uh, the big salute fundraising event that BFBS has every year and we asked you for questions to, to tweet them to us. Christopher, what kind of things were people asking?
2: Well first and foremost the response was just not what we expected, mm-hmm. not what we expected at all um, people asking big questions such as what's going on in, uh, with, with, with uh, Mr. Putin and Syria, does this mean Russian expansion, does it raise the whole question of Ceuta, Gibraltar even Malta, mm. um, and what- so is, this world be- war is this yeah. the beginning of World War 3 could you by miscalculation sort of thing we were talking about earlier by miscalculation uh, lead to
0: World War 3 Professor what-
1: Clark if I was really mean to you and gave you 30 seconds to answer mm. any of those what would you say
0: uh, we're, no- we're nowhere near World War 3 mm. uh, the Cold War was a very special set of circumstances there's, there's plenty of conflict in the world but statistically the world is more peaceful now than it has been for several hundred years mm. statistically because there's twice as many people in it and the vast majority of us don't die or suffer from war
1: you see, that's the thing that people don't say very often mm. that the world is more peaceful than it has been for a long time But,
0: you see, the, pro- the problem is that where there is real uh, volatility and where there is fragmentation, some of the, thing, the, some of the stories are dreadful mm. because, you know, we've got global media, so we see them all, and there's this sense that the world is in a terrible state. Actually, some people in the world are in a terrible state the majority of the world is peaceful and prosperous, prosperous.
1: Chris- Christopher?
2: And the so-called war and the so-called uh, diplomatic uh, leaders, and the dictators, etc, know how to manipulate that public, uh, the public confidence mm. by by manipulating the media. Uh,
1: do you want to answer those questions? By the way,
2: I will answer the question. I tell you what. Why don't we do it on on, on Twitter and then we can get a debate going? That's the but as I say, the response was uh, quite staggering.
1: Mm. Um, Professor Clark, what you got coming up in the next week?
0: Oh, uh, for the next week, uh, we're considering a lot with the uh, SDSR. The Defence Review is moving into high gear now, so we're doing a lot of material on that. Um, and we're also, of course, looking at um, counter-terrorism. Mm. I mean, there's, there's a spike in the, in the threat of terrorism in the UK, and there's quite a lot going on behind the scenes.
1: Christopher Lee, any tr- trips to the, uh, the Foreign Office this coming week?
2: Uh, no, no, the coffee's lousy. I'll tell you what there is, <laughs> though, this week. In fact, it's today. Let's, let's say well done. Remy... Ah, it's his birthday. The Royal Electrical
1: Meca- Me- Mechanical Engineers, I should say. Remy's much easier, Rimi, isn't it?
2: <laughs> Remy was formed on the first of October, nineteen forty-two. You go around the army; there isn't one without a detachment of Remy, even if it's only to fix the motor cars and keep the lights on. Great guys. Great uh, guys, and they
0: all they all reckon that they were at Waterloo.
1: <laughs> well, that is all we have time for this week. My Bakes thanks,
0: the cars and keeping the lights <laughs> on.
1: <laughs> My thanks to all of our contributors, Professor Michael Clark. Thank you to you as well. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS Sitrep. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and never miss an episode ever, ever again. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again next week. Bye bye for now. <laughs>
3: Sport Sport. and music Music. for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2.